Thank you, Tom. Uh, Tom, Tom knows this, we just talked about it, but that last song, Lord, I Need You, is one of my favorite songs. It's a song that uh, blesses me every time. It's actually the song I wake up to every morning. Um, and it's also a song that wrecks me every time. There's a line that says, when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. And there was a, a season of my life where I couldn't stand. And so that song is uh, de- near and dear to my heart. Uh, speaking of not being able to stand, if you've, I don't know where you're watching this, but if you've grown up or lived in South Dakota very long or a winter, you've had the experience of walking out into a parking lot and having it covered with uh, packed snow and ice. And for me, because of my physical limitations, that is a, a deadly scene. And so there's been many times where I've walked out and I've seen that scene and I've had to ask whoever was next to me, many times a friend, hey, would you mind if I held on to you? And so they would help me navigate that difficult situation. In fact, one time I was walking out of the gym, and the only person next to me was a guy, that real friendly guy. He knew my physical limitations, but we weren't very close. And so in kind of an uncomfortable way, I said, hey, would you mind if I held on to you uh, to navigate the ice? And he said, yeah, no problem. And all of Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and that's the uh, text that we're in today, is basically giving us this one main theme. And the theme is, it is better to go at life with friends than to go at it alone. And so I'm curious when the last time was that you asked if you could hold on to someone. I'm curious when the last time it was that you needed to hold on to someone. Perhaps it was a a financial situation that you needed advice on. And so you asked if you could hold on to their opinion and their advice. Uh, Maybe you were going through some sorrow and some grief that you couldn't bear alone. And you simply just needed to hold on to their presence. Uh, we, don't, we, all, we all have different situations, but uh, today I want to talk and share about uh, what it looks like to navigate life with friends. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, who has no one to lift him up. And I'm telling you from my ice example, it's even better uh, to have someone hold you so you don't fall. So if you join me in a quick prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your presence. Uh, God, thank you that you have hardwired in us the ability to receive love and give love. That you have placed in us this longing and this ache for companionship, for friendship, for fellowship. And I pray that uh, wherever people are, they would experience that now, whether it be in solitude with you or uh, with those that they're gathered around. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Ecclesiastes chapter 4, just sections at a time as we kind of rifle through this. Keep in mind that that common theme that we've seen a couple places in Ecclesiastes, uh, really all throughout the, the book. One is that we have in some ways, two opportunities or two approaches to life. We can strive out of our own resources to achieve gain, uh, or we can learn to receive gift from God. And so let's start in, in real, a fine place to start, right? Verse 1. I'm going to read this to you. If you have your Bibles, follow along. Otherwise, we'll have it up on the screen. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. 
Verse 2, and I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and who has not yet seen the deeds that are done under the sun. So in these first three verses, we get this idea Solomon's unpacking the travesty of oppression. And oppression is basically when one uses their authority or their power for unjust gain to the disadvantaged, to those who they are over. And so we all understand and have seen in the history of the world what oppression looks like, whether it be child abuse or one people group oppressing another people group. And there's so many times that that rips our heart because we realize how unfair, how unjust, how disadvantaged it is, all for the gain and sake of another individual. So how are we to respond to this? Shall we shed tears like in John 11:35? Shall we rip our robes like in Job 1.20? Or how about in Mark 11.15 when Jesus overturns tables? There's so many times that even though we don't have the answer for why things happen in life, we see these heartaches and we'd rather just turn our eyes away and focus on more pleasant things. But yet God calls us to action. And I think there's, there's two applications, personal applications here in these first three verses. And we get the first idea from... Uh, Psalm 73 of how we as Christians are to, to respond when we see this oppression. Psalm 73, when he's considering uh, the haves over the have-nots and the wicked are continually blessed, uh, the psalmist says this, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. So the idea is, when we just look on the surface of heartache and suffering and pain and oppression, there's tons of confusion. But as we enter into fixing our eyes on God, we start to see what he values. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, it's God saying, let me show you what actual blessing is. Let me show you what I truly value, and it's very, very different than the world. So one, we need to shift our, our economies to God, to love what he loves. And two, he reminds us, even in Ecclesiastes 3, he says, I have set eternity in your heart. It's his promise that we are eternal beings. And though these light sufferings and this oppression is, is horrible and it hurts his heart, that he is going to make all wrongs right again. And so our first, I think, approach to seeing oppression is one, recognizing, going back to fixing our eyes on God and understanding that one, he is the victor, he is just, and, and two is to ask him what he would have us do. And so the first thing I think we can certainly do is we don't want to be guilty of being the oppressor. And so if there's ever a place and time where we have a position of authority or power, God warns us to not use that for unjust gain over under other individuals. Again, it continues to follow this theme of are you using your own resources to gain for yourself? And number two, I think we're called to comfort those that are oppressed. When we see injustice, when we see people hurting, we're called to have a heart of compassion. We're called to ask God if there's something we can do to help. In Matthew 9, 36, Jesus saw the crowds. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So there's sometimes your compassion might motivate you to minister to the crowds, but more likely than not, it's probably more like the Good Samaritan who is called to minister to one weary traveler or to adopt one child or to ask if you can rake a widow's yard 
when there's people in need, our call is to bring comfort to them as we have been comforted. Let's move on to verse 4. It says, Then I saw Solomon pivots from oppression to, to toil and work. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. And so what he's saying here is the motivation that he sees on earth, under the sun, apart from God, is that the motivation is to get ahead. The motivation is to outdo. The motivation is competition. It's envy. I see something that I want, whether it be a position or respect or possessions. And so that's what strives our work ethic. And he's saying it's vanity. And you think about what, what envy is. Envy is the opposite of love. If love rejoices in the good fortune of others, vanity, or envy is seeing the good fortune of others and wanting it for ourselves. Again, gain. So what should be our motive to work? Well, I think it's still based on relationships. Again, based on doing life together, based on friendship, based on companionship. Where I believe we're called to work so that we can provide for those around us, we're called to work so that we can be generous and give to building the kingdom of God. We're called to work so that we can create uh, spaces and instruments and widgets and atmospheres and services to bless and serve other people. And so ever if I approach my, or if you approach your work without the context of, of your friend or your brother or your family, there's a good chance we're doing it with the wrong motive. So we in our culture see a tremendous amount of striving for gain and overworking. And so in verse 5, you know, one would say, well, what's the response to, to overworking? Well, one might say, well, let's just not work at all, right? And uh, in verse 5 and in other places in the Proverbs, Solomon kind of shoots a hole in that. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And basically what he's saying there is slothfulness or laziness is completely self-destructive that it will destroy you. Aside from that, uh, those who are sloth, those who are lazy, they always take from society. Someone has to pick up their lack of effort, and so they cost, and these are takers as opposed to givers. In verse 6, he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. So you think about the picture of an individual who has worked and worked and worked and slaved to gather and to gain, and he has all of his possessions that he's holding on to tightly. Uh, yes, there might be a lot, but it is incredibly heavy. And so aside from that, he's totally occupied and obsessed with what he has or what he needs to keep or adding to that two hands. And so he's not free to do anything else. And Solomon says it's better to have one hand full of quietness and I kind of get the picture of one hand is working, and the other hand is, well, free. Free to do whatever God calls you to do. Maybe it is free to adopt. Maybe it is free to give. Maybe it is free to just enjoy a, a gift of life. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Going on in verse 7, it says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. 
So what he's describing here is the workaholic who is forever working like a dog, but he has no one around him to share those experiences with, to give to, to celebrate with. He's saying when you take out relationship from the context of life, work is vanity. It's like cotton candy in your mouth, right? It it totally disappears. And so I think there's two things that our work ought to remind us of and the motive that, that we're working for. One is worship. If I am called to work, I'm called to work as unto the Lord, as it says in Ephesians. And the other is love. I am called to work unto the Lord for the benefit of others. You can see how this is completely enveloped in the idea of relationship. And now our work has purpose and meaning and joy. In verse 9, Solomon begins to transition. So far he's talked about the, the damage and danger of living life alone, out of your own self-effort, for your own gain. And in verse 9, he starts to share with us the benefits of companionship and friendship. Many of these verses are familiar to us. Verse 9 through 12, it says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone, when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So again, we see that two are better than one. And he even goes on to say three are better than two. And as Ben shared earlier, we're going to formalize this for men, but I want to encourage all of you during this time where there's a difference between solitude, which I see as good, and cultivating our hearts and being introspective enough to know ourselves and to seek God, and isolation. Solitude, I think, is good. Isolation is bad. And so our encouragement and my encouragement to you is find two other people to pray with, whether it be daily or weekly or every other day. Uh, we're designed to do life together. And I think if you, if you take the initiative, if you take the step and invitation to connect hearts uh, on that level, you will have incredible benefit, incredible reward that Solomon is highlighting here in these verses. And then in verse 13, it says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. I'm kind of speculating here, but many times when we write, we write about things that we know. And so, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Solomon has his experience, uh, specifically his family to look at. And I'm wondering if the, the poor and wise youth who turns into a king is, if he's considering his father David. Remember, David was a shepherd, and then he was anointed by God to be a great king of Israel. And I'm wondering if the old foolish king who stopped learning how to take advice was Saul. And so, looking into that, it says... Uh, For the young king, in verse 14, he went from prison to a throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who moved about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. Verse 16, there was no end of all of his people, all of whom he led. So this could be considered like the rise from rags to riches, the rise up to the top and have a great following. But then look what it says. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice him. In him, surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. So here, uh, Solomon's going back to that idea of even things that seem good, even when you're at the top, uh, it's temporary if it's not infused with the anointing of God and the relationships of loving one another and building His kingdom. 
So again, he points out this old monarch who no longer takes advice from people. And I think that's one way we choose to isolate ourselves. That's one way we choose to, again, instead of receive gift, we choose to seek gain on our own rhythms with our own resources. And this is what it says in Proverbs 18, 1 and 2. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And so as we go through these verses, as we go through uh, the chapter of Ecclesiastes 4, we do get these themes of it's better to do life together than alone. Uh, Isolation is bad. Solitude is okay. But how are we as Christians to to guarantee in some ways that we have friends? Uh, What's our approach to be? Uh, many of us pray for friends. Most of us want friends. But, but how are we to attract friends? What are we called to do as givers instead of takers? And I see uh, Jesus in Matthew when he's asked about what's the greatest commandment. I think he gives us insight into this. So Matthew 22, 37 and 38 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus tells us is we're called to be in a loving relationship with God and we're called to relate to others in love. I want to give you an example that my wife shared with me around Easter as she was reading through the book of John. Uh, She got to this point in John 12 and 13 and the context is Jesus um, is declaring his oneness with the Father. He's praying to the Father. Uh, and he, as he focuses on his father, listen to what he says in John 13, verses 3 through 5, and keep in mind, I really think this is how you attract friends. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. So we know the story where Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God-man, washes his disciples' feet. But I think it's so interesting, right before he does that, it says he knew that he came from God, and he knew that he was going to God. And in that security, that is what empowered him to serve others. And so the takeaway, I believe, is when you know who you are, when you know you lack nothing because the righteousness of Jesus has been bestowed upon you, that's when you can forget yourself. That's when you are empowered to serve others. That's when you even have eyes to see the needs of others. In Mark 10 and in Luke 22, Jesus talks about the servant leadership. And so one way to guarantee not doing life alone, I think, is to recognize any position that you have of authority is is there so you can bless and serve and love others. And when you do that, it is incredibly attractive. Once you have friends, uh, Ben talked earlier about we are a community being transformed by Jesus Christ. That's, that's one of our, our, our mantras at Rimrock. So what do you do once you have close friends? I think then you can focus and pivot on serving others as a group. And I think of Jesus in, in Mark feeding the 4,000, and they have, what do they have, five loaves and two fish. Meek resources, but together Jesus blesses that, and he multiplies them, and then his disciples serve the people. I think there's so many of us who do have healthy, blessed relationships that God has says, who much has been given, much is expected. And so in the context of a healthy family, in the context of a healthy church, in the context of a healthy friend group, look for opportunities to get outside that health and love other people. 
Again, one more, two more examples. One is the, the counter to this. As Solomon spends time, the first half saying, if you seek gain for yourself, if you seek gain of yourself, reminds me of the rich young ruler. Remember, he comes to Jesus, and he has much. He's holding hands full of things. He says, what must I do? And Jesus says, sell everything you have. He's looking to gain himself, and he's looking for it to come from himself. And as Jesus says, actually, what I want you to do, he implies, I want you to learn, instead of trying to accomplish this on your own, I want you to learn to receive. I want you to learn that everything is gift. But the man doesn't see that, and he doesn't do that. And because he's continuing to rely on himself, he turns and he walks away sad. So not only does he have a handful of things that he's not free to enjoy with anyone, his emotional state is sorrow. And God's saying, unless you fall to the ground and die to give others, you will die alone. If you learn to die to yourself and your own agenda, if you learn to be a servant, to edify and uplift other people, that's when you find yourself doing life with twos and threes and a whole community of people. That's when you have people that will hold on to you when you need it. That's when people can hold on to you or you can hold on to them when uncertainty comes in your life. Lastly, let's focus on Jesus who, a far greater act than even washing his disciples' feet. Consider Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. In anguish, he spends time focusing and pouring out his heart to his Father. And as he trusts in his Father's love, as he trusts in his Father's provision for him, he surrenders to his Lordship. And even though he asked, take this cup from me, if there's any other way to save your people, if there's any other way to rescue those who are lost, let's do that. But he says, God, I trust you. Father, into your hands I commit myself, your will be done. And so as he's sitting there, he has opportunity to either rely on himself, and if that's the case, then all of us are lost for all time. But because he trusts his Father, because he surrendered to his Father, we have opportunity to be in relationship with him. And I want you to think about Jesus gets up from there and he marches to the cross. And Jesus died alone. He was forsaken by Israel. He was forsaken by his disciples. And then he was forsaken by God the Father. And because Jesus died alone, we never have to be alone. Because my sin was poured into his heart and he took on the penalty that I deserved where he was separated from all of his friends, all of his family, and God himself. Because of that, you can be assured that you will never be forsaken. Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Story Bible says it this way. When Christ was on the cross and he cried out to God the Father, it was the first time and the last that Jesus spoke and nothing happened. That the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And because of that moment of silence, you and I can be sure that when we cry out to God, we will be heard, we will be answered. And so we have opportunity here to recognize the cost that we have the opportunity to have companionship and friendship. Where Christ died alone, Christ felt silence, and when he rose from the grave, he said, now you have an opportunity not to be alone, not to be an alien, but to be in fellowship with the Trinity in a personal way and to be in fellowship with your brothers and your sisters. Pray with me.
Living God, I do praise you and thank you that you hear me now because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And as he took on my death, he gave me his life. And a part of that life is the opportunity to lock shields with brothers and sisters and enjoy our journey in suffering and in good times. And we just praise you that all of this comes by your grace. And so help us to receive it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks.